Welcome. Recording. <laughs> right, so here we are in our joint podcast episode. How are you doing today, Meredith? Nice to meet you. I'm well. I'm excited to um, explore the idea of two hosts in conversation. Absolutely. I think it's a fan, fantastic idea. So I'd like to take the opportunity to, to welcome you to the OCD and Anxiety podcast. <laughs> I would like to take the opportunity to welcome you to the Beautiful Voyager podcast. <laughs> Excellent. So now we've got that out of the way, we can, uh, we, can, we can start finding out about each other a bit more. So do you want to start off? Can you tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, I'm happy to. So um, you're hearing my voice from San Francisco, California. I have lived here for about 16 years, and I've worked in the tech world of technology as mostly a writer and video producer. I've worked at lots of different companies. Right now I work at Pinterest and I work on emotional wellness products at Pinterest. Um, but I also created a website called Beautiful Voyager, which is a community for overthinkers, people pleasers, and perfectionists. And this week I, or this year, I published my, my first book about overthinking, which is called Get Out of My Head. Fantastic. Yeah, that all sounds really interesting. So, um, so you, you actually work on, on self-development um, for, for Pinterest? Yes. We have um, a big new emotional well-being um, focus at the company, and we're working to define that and figure out what it means and build um, that into the product as well. Fantastic. Great. And um, and so you you when did you set up Beautiful Voyager? This was um, you know like you've been doing this for five years ago actually. Wow. So yeah, yeah. So um, I was in the middle of a crazy period of startups, mm -hmm. and uh, I didn't really know what was wrong. I was having a lot of physical symptoms, um, many migraines. I uh, fainted on a bus, a, a public bus in San Francisco. I was having lightheadedness. It was just getting worse and worse. These things had been with me my whole life, but yeah. they were getting worse. Yeah. And I was very lucky to go to a neurologist who works with people in Silicon Valley. Mm. So she said she had seen this before and she was able to spot generalized anxiety disorder. Right. And it was a week before I turned 40 years old. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. And so you, so you found out there that you had that. And I guess that it, it was useful for you to get that diagnosis so you can actually work out, well, hang on, this is what's been going on this whole time. No? Yes. One of the best experiences of my life, actually, I mean, was that moment because it changed everything. It made me look at everything completely differently. But Rob, the host in me also wants to hear about you. I just want to he like hear the introduction of you and like how you got to your work. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, uh, I guess as, as, a, as a kid, I was a fairly like, happy kid um, and, you know, nice upbringing and all those kind of things. But at the age of 16, I start. I, I, I developed. I guess you could call it overthinking at that at that stage. You know, I was kind of getting really kind of uh, anxious about things and, and over analyzing everything. Um, but it kind of spiraled out of control, and I guess you could start to call it. It became something that was more you know relatable to to OCD. 
you know, very obsessive kind of thoughts. Um, so that kind of got worse and worse and worse over time because I didn't know, much like you, I didn't know what the problem was, you know. I was really struggling with these anxious thoughts and, uh, you know. Yeah, compulsive was- thinking is so isolating too. You have no idea what's happening and yeah. you think it just feeds on itself, right? Yeah, well, obviously you try to do what you can, which is, you know, what we do in Western society is to try to fight with it, to try to push it away, to problem solve the anxiety. And unfortunately, that just makes everything worse. And so, you know, it tends to spiral out of control if we go down that kind of path, which is, which is what I did for, for many years, because, you know, like back then, there was a lot less information about um, anxiety. Uh, in general. So it was hard to find the information. I couldn't really Google stuff like you can now. So yeah, it took a long time for me to kind of, um, you know, what well, eventually kind of in my kind of maybe mid to late 20s, I started to find out about mindfulness and, and meditation. And uh, I read a book by uh, John Kabat-Zinn. Uh, it's called Full, Full Catastrophe Living. And that was uh, an absolute godsend because in that book, he was talking about acceptance. And up until that point, the idea of acceptance had never even crossed my mind as a way of dealing with anxiety. It was always about how can I push it away? How can I get rid of it? And, uh, you know, so that was a big game changer. And then a few years later. Did you know it was OCD? Had you been given a diagnosis? No, at this point, no, I didn't. I didn't find out until I was 30. Uh, that it was OCD. So I had, you know, 14 years of, of dealing with this, not knowing what it was, an absolute nightmare. Uh, and then one day, yeah, I was on the computer Googling at this point, like obviously Google nine years ago, it's very easy to start Googling your uh, health anxiety problems. So, and actually that became a bit of a compulsion in itself, which I think it does for a lot of people, you know, like, but anyway, so I was Googling and yeah, I, I came across a description of OCD, but not the normal kind of, um, so most people, when they think of OCD, they think of hand washing or something like this. The media portrays it in that way. Uh, however, it's, uh, you know, it, a lot of people, I, I, I would actually say that, you know, the vast majority of people with OCD struggle with pure, they call it pure OCD. However, it's not, it's, it's not a very helpful term. It's kind of, uh, it's it's a kind of mental OCD where the, the the obsessions are in your head, and so most people actually struggle with that, and, and that's what I was struggling with uh, for many years. And so yeah, when I came across this definition, I was like, wow! I was completely like blown away, and, and exactly as you just said, it was such a, a relief, you know, to to find out ah. This, this is actually, you know, a recognized problem. It's not just me. I thought I was just going mad, you know, for years. I was like struggling so much. And uh, I thought no one else could be going through what I was going through. You know, it, it, it was, you know, I, it, was, it was terrible. So to find out that it was this and that there's, you know, millions of other people around the world who have the same problem, uh, you know, I didn't feel quite so alone anymore. And, you know, I had a clear kind of approach for what I could start to do to, to treat it and manage it. So it was, uh, it was a huge relief uh, for me as well. It's amazing to me that so many of us are in the dark for so long. I wonder if that's changing these days. Like, 
because of Google and because of other things, are people finding answers faster now? I assume yes. I really think so. Yeah, I really do. I mean, there's a lot of uh, you know young people in their early twenties on you know Instagram who are you know talking about mental health problems, and I think that's really good. No, it's um, and so yeah, I see a lot of people in their early twenties who are you know they come to me because they're struggling with OCD or you know obsessions of some sort related to anxiety, and you know so I think I think there is more awareness. And certainly people talk about mental health a lot more these days. No, I think that's really good. So when did you start your coaching? Like, what was your journey from that real discovery of a diagnosis to now? Yeah, well, I I guess, uh, you know, I I started working as a, I've always worked in education in one form or another. Um, I worked as a teacher for many years and, you know, that was, that was a good profession to be involved in and I, I enjoyed it. However, I realized that the stress of teaching uh, was not helping me with, with anxiety. It was not helping with the OCD. I managed to get to a place, you know, not long after turning 30, once I realized what the problem was of, uh, you know, of working with a therapist or, or two. Uh, and and actually then kind of, you know, doing a lot of my own research and reading everything I could about OCD and anxiety and r- arrived to a place in my kind of early 30s where I really started to feel a lot better, you know, and uh, from that, so good. yeah, from that point, it's been a kind of, you know, a journey of exploring and, and finding what works for me and trying to improve and improve, you know, it's... Uh, it's, it's, I think with anxiety problems, it's about that. You, there, there's a good side to anxiety and OCD in a way. Like once you realize you have it and you start to do the work to feel better, you know, you start to see other things in life that you can improve and work on as well. And so, you know, there are so many positives if we can, if we can look at it from a different point of view. But yeah, so I started to, to, to improve and yeah, and as part of that process, I think I realized at some point that I didn't want to be a teacher forever because it's it's emotionally tiring <laughs> and it's physically tiring. And you know, I've, I've done it. I've now yeah been a teacher for over ten years, so I really wanted to do something else. And um, for me, it seems like a really good fit to go into the kind of coaching sphere. You know, there's a lot there's a lot of uh, connection there between teaching and coaching I have all this experience with overcoming anxiety and OCD so it just seemed like a a really good thing to do how about for yourself that's yeah that's super interesting um I feel very similar to you which was when I first got my diagnosis I started googling like crazy And I was disappointed by what I found. Um, I didn't find information that spoke to me. I definitely did not find information that said, you may be thinking a lot, but not worrying. I never thought of it as worrying. I thought of it as problem solving. Mm. Um, Sorry, for some reason, I've got something caught in my throat. Um, So that was my big aha moment was there are probably other people like me out there that don't see that don't recognize maybe it's due to stigma or whatever that this is worry 
I never even thought of it as worry. I just thought of it as problem solving, thinking really hard, fixing things. Um, but then the physical components were very serious. I mean, were hard to avoid. So for me, I saw um, the physical elements as uh, objective truth, that they would tell me what was happening. Yeah. So I basically learned to interpret the physical side to help myself understand when I was doing better. I and when I needed you know, to intercede, the physical part was my guide. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, and so how did you do that? How, because that can be quite difficult sometimes, I think, at first anyway. So difficult. Yeah. It's so difficult. I mean, part of it is a forever journey of trying to understand uh, without getting overly attached to it. I mean, like you said, you can become obsessed with Googling. You can become obsessed with information too. So you sort of have to like... Yeah learn to let go of that. But um, I'm always trying, yeah, it's, it's for real, but I'm always trying to, um, to gently understand the systems of the body and how hormones work. Mm -hmm. So I spend a lot of time sort of researching like cortisol levels and thyroid and not just for myself, but like humans in general, like what, what are the things that are affecting us? Um, in different ways. And I read a book recently that was really uh, eye-opening, which basically said emotions are physical. Like we have an experience, we have a thought and hormones flood our body. Mm. And if we need to understand that physical experience and how to process it, as well as the reasons and the causes. So for example, I had a break from my morning meetings at work before talking to you. And I listened enough to myself to say, like, why don't I take a 20 minute walk Mm, Um, just to like move through like what had happened in the morning to get ready to talk to you. So um, a lot of it is just picking up on signals that I spent most of my life completely ignoring, like absolutely shutting away. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So. So you mean kind of really like beginning to understand your your body and the telltale signs of when you're starting to feel tense and, you know, kind of going for a walk, for example, before that, before that evolves into something worse, you know, like uh, meditating. Mm -hmm. Yes. Like if I start getting a stiff neck, it's time to meditate. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I completely agree. If if I can, if I can have the time, I mean, like yesterday I had exactly the same thing where, you know, I had, um, I, I was doing some teaching uh, online in the morning. So I did three hours in a row of teaching. And then I had two hours free and I had loads of stuff to do. But I just said, you know what? Like I, I, I'm feeling that, that tense feeling in my body, you know, like, uh, and sometimes it's in my shoulders. Sometimes it's in the neck. Uh, it's actually like you were just saying. And it was like, no. Sometimes um, it's here, right? Do yeah. you have this thing? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, it can be. Yeah, it's funny. You just notice that you're holding yourself in a in a not in a good way in a kind of slightly kind of scrunched up way. So it could be in the neck or yeah, it could be. And so I was like, you you know what, I'm going to leave this work. Uh, I can do it later and that will be fine. And I'm just going to go for a bike ride. So I just literally jumped on the bike. I was out the house. I was gone for one hour you know, into this forest that we have nearby. And I came back and I just felt 
so much more ready to go for the rest of the day. Obviously, not everyone can do that, and it depends on your workload. But you know, finding a way, I think, to uh, to, to relax somehow, whether that's going for a walk, doing a five-minute breathing meditation, uh, just tuning into the body, and and doing some gentle stretching. You know, all of these things can can kind of stop that anxiety from from you know from yes. worse and worse. And yeah, and it. It helps you move move the emotion through. It helps you process the hormones, which is amazing. Um, Rob, one thing we didn't talk about is that you're in Barcelona. You're originally from the UK, but you live in Barcelona. How did you end up there? And what is it like? What have you learned? Yeah, well, I guess uh, when, when I first came to Barcelona, which was about 12 years ago now, um, I, uh, you know, I was kind of, I was, uh, I was on a surf holiday with some friends in France and I met a, uh, a girl from, uh, from Barcelona. So she invited me to, to come and stay in the city for, for, you know, a week or so. So I came over and uh, it didn't work with the girl, but I fell in love with Barcelona. So, uh, <laughs> and from that point, I said to myself, one day I'm going to come and uh, I'm going to come and live here because it's amazing. You know, it really is. It was right in the middle of summer, but it's just a beautiful city. The architecture is beautiful. Um, the culture is really interesting. Uh, you know, there's a lot of art going on here and a lot of culture in general. Uh, you know, the language with it's, uh, you know, two languages, Catalan and Spanish. Um, the food is delicious and then nearby you have like you know you have mountains you have beautiful beaches you can go skiing in, in you know in the winter and then in the afternoon you could be on the beach for example you know it's uh, it's just a lovely place to live and so yeah so six years ago I, I came uh, and being a teacher it was easy to find you know to find work and so yeah I've been here living here ever since just outside the city I was in the city center for four years and then now I live kind of just outside, uh, 20 minutes outside the, the, the center yeah, on the beach. So it's... And the uh, people that you work with, do you tend to work with um, fellow Brits or like who, who are your... Or do you have like Spanish people too? How does it tend to work? So mostly it's online. Uh, just about all my clients are online. So they are from, I would say the majority are from the UK. However, you know, I have lots of clients uh, from, from like Germany and from, um, you know, other, other European countries, Americans as well. Um, so, yeah, people from everywhere, really. Um, I, That's amazing. I, yeah, I generally don't work with Spanish people because I speak Spanish, but I, I honestly think, um, you know, with, with coaching and therapy and these kind of things, it's so much better, I think, if you if you can do it in in your you know, your mother tongue with somebody who really understands the language well. Because you know, if you're explaining something quite complicated and difficult to explain, like a, you know, whether that's generalized anxiety disorder, uh, social anxiety, OCD, whatever it is, you know, like you really need to be able to explain that well, and uh, and and the person you're you're explaining it to really needs to be able to understand it perfectly. So uh, unfortunately, my Spanish is good, but not quite good enough for that. I think. <laughs> what about cultural differences? Like, what have you learned working with people from so many different cultures about how anxiety and OCD are perceived in different places, if if differently? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think um, 
people from English-speaking countries are definitely at an advantage, I think, when it comes to information. Uh, like what you were saying earlier, though, whether that's uh, sometimes a disadvantage, you know, like, mm-hmm. because you can really go down the, the Google rabbit hole sometimes of, of looking for information. And, you know, there's so much out there and a lot of it's good. Uh, some of it might be misleading or unhelpful. And some of it, you know, like you might find some useful information that you think is, oh, this is great. Uh, but then with people with OCD, it's like people always have a doubt, like, but what if that's not right? And so then they look for something else and, and you know, and then they question whether that's right. And then they're looking for something else and it's, it can go on forever. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think um, in, in other countries, I think perhaps there is, there is less information available. But I think the way that people deal with uh, anxiety and, and OCD, from, from my impression, it's the same. You know, it's the it impact. That's my impression, too. That's what I was curious about. Yeah, I feel like. Uh, these things transcend culture mm-hmm. from what I can tell. Like they, there's, it's a very human experience. Yeah. Underneath it all, it's, it's always the same with, with OCD. It's, you know, people, for whatever reason, have learned to have a bad relationship with anxiety. I think, you know, people, uh, you know, at one stage probably in their life, they didn't have that. I mean, they probably would have as a child, you know, like uh, people often deal with anxiety, you know, in a more natural way. But at some point, for whatever reason, people can develop this bad relationship with it where we want to, we don't want to accept it or experience it anymore. And, uh, and so we start to push it away, you know, and fight with it. And unfortunately, you know, that's, that's often the, the compulsion with OCD is, is people trying to do something to deal with the anxiety. Uh, but normally it's not a healthy thing that they're doing. It's actually just keeping the circle of, of OCD going. So yeah, that, all, that mechanism always seems to be the same, I think. And, uh, and the other thing with it, is, which is interesting, is it doesn't matter what the, the theme is of the OCD. So whether it's hand washing or whether people are worried about patterns or symmetry or whether they're concerned about, you know, hurting themselves or somebody else accidentally. All of these things are underlying it are, you know, it's just anxiety. It's just they've become obsessed about something and then they perform compulsions to deal with it. So it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's quite interesting how it's, it's, always the, it's always basically the same. Yeah, I think that is really interesting. How do you help people? Is it a faith? Is do you have to have faith that at a certain point you're not going to be able to get more of an answer? That like, like you said, like people just want to like keep digging and keep asking, and they don't believe. Like, do you have to help them learn to have faith that like you have the information? There's no more information. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's one of the I mean, you touched on probably like the, one of the most important things, you know, o- OCD is often called the doubting disease, you know, like you can never get enough certainty. And so it's always a kind of a what if, like, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure that this, this thing, terrible thing is never going to happen. 
you know, like intellectually, I understand that it's very uh, unlikely that this thing is going to happen. But what if it does? And then, you know, you can spend an hour thinking about it, think that you've arrived at a, the perfect place where you've definitely proved that this thing could never happen. And then, <laughs> like a minute later, but what if it does? And but what if? Yeah. And so it's, yeah, it's so hard. It's true. It is. It is about taking a leap of faith. It really is. You, you're, you've hit the nail on the, on, on the head. It's, um, you know, whether that's... Uh, for many people, I think, I don't know what you think about this, but uh, certainly it's true for me. And that is for many people, I think they start to develop more of a spiritual kind of side from, you know, having gone through this experience of OCD or anxiety or whatever. Because having that leap of faith is, is not easy. Um, you know, and so maybe sometimes you have to try to kind of trust in something bigger than yourself. To, to, to be able to do that. You don't have to. I, yeah. Right. But I think for some people- I often talk, I often think about, I often think about Alcoholics Anonymous. Do you have that in the UK? Alcoholics Anonymous? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yes, okay. And so there's this idea that you have to let go, that you have to, uh, you know, they talk about higher power, but hmm. I think the core is you cannot control it. Yeah. Like that's the core thing. And it feels very similar to what I had to learn. Like I cannot control it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's one of the most important things I think for all anxiety problems. No? So, um, yeah. So, so you had a similar ex experience with that. Uh, so you, you, you would say in your own experience in overcoming anxiety, this was also a big problem or, you know, part of the solution. I, I, yes, I, t I tend to describe it as um, a dissolution of ego mm -hmm. only because I, my rock bottom was that I had to give up. Like I was so career focused and I had so many, um, I was holding on so tightly to my work. Yeah. But I was failing. I mean, I was like at these startups, they weren't working. And I had to stop trying so hard. <laughs> like I had to stop trying to control it or thinking that I would understand or own it. Um, and, and give up at work. I had to be like, well, I can't. I can't control this. Yeah. I can only do what I can do. And that was very different than where I had been before. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's amazing how many people uh, who struggle with anxiety have this perfectionism kind of side to them. Uh, you know, and it, 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 this, is, this is a big, a big part of it, I think. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I'm a perfectionist. Like, certainly as a child, like, for example, I didn't like school as a kid. I wanted to be outdoors running around with my friends, like not stuck inside a, a square box all day, uh, solving math problems. Um, you know, uh, um, so I, I wouldn't say I'm like a perfectionist when it came to that kind of stuff, but there are aspects of my personality that are definitely perfectionistic. And yeah, so many people that I work with, it's, uh, this, this is uh, definitely something that they, 
they struggle with as well, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's like we we think at some point, okay, if I just work harder, or if I with OCD, like, okay, I'll try to prove it. What if, okay, I'm going to try to prove it. And you're just in this cycle of thinking that somehow escalating the hamster wheel and trying harder is the path to success. But actually, like, at some point, you have to let go. Yeah. And that's not always easy. I mean, letting go always is not always a simple solution. It's not like, oh, I let go and then everything's fine. Like, you still have the same struggles. Um, but ultimately there's an acceptance or a faith that you can't mm. have the answer always. Do you think that it comes down to, you know, choice at the end of the day, a lot of, uh, a lot of these problems related to anxiety? You know, I think of it more, Rob, as um, habit and practice. Mm. Like I actually think I had to learn to think differently. Yeah. And there are certain sentences, I write about this in the book, but there are certain sentences I don't allow myself to say. If something starts with if only, that's a no, I will not, I cannot say that. So that's a habit. Like I had to learn not, like when you said what if, or, um, but it could happen, that would be the kind of thing that I would not be allowed (laughs) to do. Yeah. Yeah. so it's more accepting rules, accepting that I have a set of rules that I have to stick to. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I, um, that's exactly how I view OCD. I think it's like a bad habit of thinking that we've gotten into. Unfortunately, you know, it's, uh, you know, the brain is, is plastic. So unfortunately, the brain is plastic, but also fortunately, because uh, you can learn it, but you can unlearn it. And so, yeah, it's, it is a habit. And if you, if you kind of spend, you know, six months, a year, really ruminating about the same things in an obsessive way, it creates pathways in the brain, you know, where it's, uh, you know, you're using those neural pathways all the time. And the more you use them, the more imprinted they are, and the harder it is to not use them. And that's how habits form, I guess. But it's, uh, yeah, so if you can... If you can learn it like that way, you can also unlearn it. You're exactly right. So I think it's really, uh, it's a really good point. Like identifying self-defeating language that is keeping you, uh, is keeping you stuck, uh, as you just mentioned. I think that's a really good way of, uh, of, of doing it. And accepting, and the faith comes in that like the rules that you're setting up for yourself. Mm-hmm are valuable and that you're committed to them. Like that takes faith to be like, I've come up with the right rules and I will stick to this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Commitment. I mean, I'm really interested in uh, acceptance commitment therapy. That for me was uh, like one of the, you know, one of the big things that I came across kind of in my early thirties that really started to make a big difference to to me and how I felt. and commitment, you know, is a huge part of that. Um, so, yeah, I think that and that, that book, sorry, that uh, this approach is really focused on values as well. Um, again, if you can, if you can commit to, to acceptance and to uh, changing 
little behaviors over time. You know, it doesn't have to be changing big things straight away, like changing small things like identifying language, which is self-defeating or, you know, changing like uh, bad habits, you know, that you're, you're doing routinely that are really keeping you stuck. So first off, identifying them, then changing them. Uh, and, but then also committing to values, committing to things in your life that make life meaningful for you and important, you know, whether that's creativity, whether that's spending time with your like, family and friends. I really think another big part, and again, this was certainly true for me, when I was really struggling, you said earlier, like, you know, you must have felt so alone during that time. And, uh, you know, I really did because I was so remote from my values. I wasn't connecting with people in a way I wanted to. Um, I wasn't present when I was with people. You know, all of those things that are important to you in life, the things that really do make life meaningful and great, Sadly, they often go out the window when you're really stuck with anxiety because all you can think about is, is the anxiety and trying to get rid of it. So your, your world becomes much smaller. So I think when we can try to focus outside ourselves on, on values, things start to open up a little bit again. And just in itself, that can really help with, with anxiety. I love that point. Um, I really love your description of you were, you felt alone because you were almost alone from yourself. Like you, you were like divided from the things that mattered most to you. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's so important to understand. It does start within yourself of understanding the things that you care about, which can be very confusing and hard. But once you can sort of do that, you're not alone if you have yourself. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's so, that's so true. Yeah, it, it's really important. And yeah, it, it taps in as well to, um, you know, it's like uh, self-acceptance and uh, self-love, which, uh, you know, again, th- these kind of concepts, by the way, like at the age of 16, were completely alien to me. If you said to me, I know. you know, like, you need to like love yourself a bit more, I would like laugh, laugh in somebody's face if they said that to me at age 16. You know, I would, you know, but I guess as you get older, you, um, you know, you change and you, you kind of open up to more ideas. And, and I think today, well, you realize the old ways weren't working, right? You realize like, Oh, that way did not work. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and I just think there's more, more acceptance of, you know, kind of Eastern ideas of, you know, because generally the Western approach is, if you have anxiety or any kind of problem like that, it's like, I don't know, like this old kind of macho, like, you know, like man up, like get on with it, you know, like uh, you'll be okay, just tough it out. And, that, you know, like that's, that's what I was doing and it obviously wasn't working, um, you know. And so I think there is generally more acceptance of, of you know, Eastern, you know, maybe more Buddhist, uh, approaches to things which are obviously much more about taking care of yourself you know looking after yourself um, you know spending time with people and, and being in the present moment all of these things I would say like without without eastern philosophy and uh, these ideas I think I 
would have still been lost because whether it was books by John Kabat-Zinn or Acceptance Commitment Therapy, all of these things that helped me the most, they came from, you know, they came from the East. So, uh, so meditation is very important to you too, I think you were saying earlier. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I completely agree with you that many of the most helpful ideas definitely have their roots in Buddhism specifically. I mean, it's hard to find other paths beyond some of those core, um, you know, I don't know what words exactly are the right words to use, but like loving kindness meditation or, you know, other Vipassana approaches or mindfulness. I mean, those things are, it's hard to think of a thing that, that works as well as that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's incredible. It's, it's so helpful. And we've known it, you know, as a, as a species, we've had these tools for so many years, but in the West, I guess we've kind of frowned upon, upon these approaches for, for many years, you know, and uh, what a pity because they are so powerful. And uh, the philosophy, the mindset that it, that it provides you with is incredibly, incredibly helpful. So what else have you found, you know, over, over the years, have you found to be really helpful for, for generalized anxiety disorder? I mean, it, I, I always say that it's um, medication, mm. meditation, and communication. Right. Those are my three pillars that have proven to be consistently over time the most, I don't know, that's my magic trio. I haven't figured out a way around that. So I also um, edit a very large publication on the platform Medium about mental health. I don't know if you've ever heard of Medium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I have a publication on there called Invisible Illness. Right. And lots of people write about mental health in many different, mostly their own experiences. And to me, communication includes writing. I mean, it's talking, but, but a lot of it is that internal work of making sense. Like you mentioned with values, like making sense of, of what's happening inside. Um, So I always encourage people to explore writing for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, uh, yeah, I think those, those three things that you mentioned there are so important, you know, and, 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 and seeking out the right help. You no, know, it's, uh, it's incredibly important for, for some people that's obviously going to see a therapist, for other people, you know, they, they actually appreciate, I think, working with somebody who's really had experience of, of the issue they're going through themselves. Um, I agree with that. I think that, you know, as somebody who went to five different therapists and no one spotted what was happening with me, no one spotted anxiety. um, I have, I have really landed on the side of um, peer support and sort of sharing experiences, sharing what works. Um, you know, just the, the, the sort of the experience based lived reality. I'm, I'm a big believer in. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think it's really important for, you know, for me, when I found out I had OCD, for example, 
being able to to read up on it and hear other people's stories in, in books, you know, and and hear what they're saying and be like, wow, you know, this person is explaining me here. You know, this is this is this is incredible. It's so it's so helpful to, to realize other people understand. And also I think it gives you that that confidence to say this this approach that this person is talking about is worked for them. You know, so you know it it it, it might work for me too. I think sometimes Yes, that's very powerful. Yeah. Because I think sometimes when you're really struggling and like you see a therapist and the therapist says, well, you can do this approach. And well, you know, it's kind of like, okay, well, this guy is, is you know, following this approach. But is this going to work for me? Like, you know, I don't, you can feel like, because the anxiety can be so horrible and you really want it to be gone. And you can feel like nothing's going to work for you. Like you can be very sure that nothing is going to work. Um, you know, and so actually, if you do work with somebody who's been there before, they can their confidence and their experience of of what they've been through can really rub off. I think on on you, and that can be really helpful. I agree. There is. Um, I have someone on the site, a columnist who works on Beautiful Voyager. Mm. His job is certified peer specialist. He is hired by California to share his experiences. Oh, wow. um, and this is a new trend. This is a new job that's only in a couple of states right now. But it makes me wonder what the future is for that kind of role within the health industry, because I do think that is crucial. Yeah, no, I, I, I really, yeah, it really is. It really is to, to give people hope, you know, because so often when you are really like, stuck in the moment, you know, whether that's with, with, with GAD or a- any type of anxiety problem, it can, like we were saying earlier, it really does feel like it's the center of your universe. And, you know, it can be very hard to focus on other things. And I know some people with OCD, you know, they can't even go to work anymore because they're so obsessed with these, these things. Absolutely. You know, they're literally like stuck in bed, you know, with the thoughts and it's, it's terrible. So yeah, I think people need hope. They need to know that there's there's help out there. And, and the good thing is these days that there is so much good stuff out there. CBT, it really does work. You know, there there is you know there's so much um, research that shows its effectiveness for um, OCD. There's you know there's um, ERP exposure response prevention. There's uh, acceptance commitment therapy. Um, you know, and but then there's also all the other kind of holistic approaches that are really helpful for all of these things as well that we've been talking about. Mindfulness and um, you know, just exercise for me has been huge. You know, I uh, as a younger when I was younger, I was exercising all the time, and then for whatever reason, that went out the window at some point when I was feeling really bad. And, you know, that that also had a knock on effect, not not exercising. So picking that up. You know, all of these things, they combine and, you know, I, I think it's, it's important. Sometimes I think people are really focused on, you know, just doing the treatment and then I'm going to be better. Mm. I think if we don't also address lifestyle factors and other things, then it's very easy maybe just to kind of fall back into having anxiety again. Because if you're leading like not a particularly healthy lifestyle, you know, it can 
it can easily lead to, to anxiety. I mean, that exactly is the physical body part that I was describing for sure. I think helping people understand who people who may already have black and white thinking mm. may think, oh, I have to become a triathlete in order to be to exercise. And that is not the case. I mean, I think I, during COVID, I've learned like, it's okay to take a half an hour walk a day. Yeah. Like it does not have to be like, let's ratchet the bar down on what that achievement is. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. Yeah. So whatever, whatever is, you know, uh, something that you can do, whether that's a walk, whether that's a run, you know, for 10 minutes or just like literally go onto YouTube and do like a, a five minute workout, a 10 minute workout, whatever you have time for, you'll find it yep. on YouTube. Uh, you know, but yeah, the benefits are, are huge. But yeah, don't, don't beat yourself up if you, you know, if you say that you're going to do it three times a week, you just do it twice. Hey, that's a, that's a start, you know, and that's, that's great. So yeah, I, I think you're right. Just And sometimes, I mean, eventually you can listen to yourself and be like, oh, I actually want to do this. <laughs> That's the hard thing is like, instead of telling yourself you have to do it, like try to get to the point where you want to. I mean, it's not easy. I totally, yeah. <laughs> I will be the first to say like, it is not easy, but trying to like really hear yourself, how that helps. Yeah. What do you think is one of the most important or the most important thing you, you've learned from your experiences with, with uh, Gad? I mean, I, 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 have, I have talked about and written about the hormone wave. The hormone wave was the most important thing I learned about anxiety, which is the idea that um, whether it's immediate or it could be hours later, when something happens to you or you have certain thoughts, your body is flooded with hormones, yeah, cortisol, adrenaline, and those things can affect you um, in so many different ways. And they can even make you shaky, but the shakiness is often a side sign that the hormone wave is receding. So understanding how that is hitting you and like, how to celebrate after the hormone wave hits and the shakiness is a good thing. These are like really important elements um, for me to on getting, having a relationship with the mm. hormones. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's uh, that's great that you've come to that understanding of your body and how, you know, what the warning signs are and how it all works and what you can do to, to help yourself relax in those situations you know I think it's empowering actually uh you know so often with with these kind of problems I think one of the reasons why it feels so horrible is you you can feel like you've lost your personal power over your life and over your situation and over your ability to be able to you know to control things and obviously that's not a nice place to be you know but when you feel when you go somewhere and you're so, you know, like, you're, I don't know, say you're just going to, I don't know, like the supermarket or something, and you're so afraid that you, you might have a panic attack or that you might lose control. Uh, or like you say, you had this experience on uh, the bus. Now, you said at the start where you, you, you fainted. I fainted, yeah, yeah. 
you know, like these kind of things, like the thoughts that we can have about these things then after something like that happens, it's very easy to get carried away with negative thinking about this kind of thing. And, you know, you can become obsessed about it and you can, it really does feel like you, you you know, you're losing control. And so I, I really think that what you, what you're talking about, what you've managed to achieve through getting more in touch with yourself and, in your body and, and understanding the hormones and the, you know you are you've gained a lot more control over yourself a, a, a far greater and deeper understanding and that that builds this feeling of power that that you know sadly we lose i think when we when we really get stuck with anxiety yeah i mean i could i couldn't agree more now um if I do get lightheaded, I know what steps to take. I know what it means. I, it doesn't, it doesn't even scare me. I mean, I, I totally understand what's happening. Um, and I, I know how to communicate to the people around me, like, this is what's happening. This is, you know, I need to go lay down or whatever it might be. But what about you, Rob? What's, what's your thing that you learned? (laughs) Uh, yeah, it's a good question. It's a really good question. Uh, I asked it myself, so now I have to answer it. Um, you yes. know, I think there's so many things that I've learned, and um, you know, that have been really important. So it's, it's really hard to to say exactly, you know, what what it is. But I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of say a couple of things. Number one is is kind of acceptance of your situation. Now, for me, uh, the word acceptance is kind of like a pet hate of mine because, you know, it's, it's quite frustrating when you hear it. And for me, when I first heard about acceptance, I found it quite annoying because, you know, it's like, how do I accept these horrible sensations? Like, it's almost a bit, you know, like you can't say that to people like without explaining how to do it. And so I think uh, for me, it was learning about how can I actually accept, like, how do I do that? And, and the only way to learn about acceptance is by gently putting yourself into situations that give you anxiety on purpose, you know, to, to allow yourself to experience that anxiety, but in a controlled way and to, you know, to experience it and practice allowing it to be there i think you know in a way that is you know one of the most important things because anxiety is a part of life we can't live without it you know it's actually very important of course because you know just crossing the road if you <laughs> um, if you don't have any anxiety you're going to come to a sticky end so of course we need to experience anxiety but we need to experience it in a healthy way you know, and so when when the uh, when we're getting that fear signal from the amygdala, you know that something is is wrong, and you know then a thought pops up into the head, you know, and and you're starting to to, to worry about something. When you're feeling that anxiety inside, you know you have you do have a choice, and that's that's the second thing that I think I wanted to mention that for me is really important is 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 choice because. I feel like for a long time, I didn't have a choice, you know, that the anxiety was in charge and I was being pushed around by it. Like it was a bully, you know, it was, it was beating me up 
and uh, I'd given it all of my lunch money <laughs> and, uh, you know, I didn't have any more to give, but it was still bullying me. And, uh, you know, and so actually it's not true though. It's, uh, it's the other way around. Like, well, you don't have to bully the anxiety, you know, in fact, you want to do the opposite. You want to, you want to give it a hug as cheesy as that sounds. Um, you know, you actually want to try to welcome it in because when you do that, you're turning, you know, you're completely turning the situation on its head. Uh, and, and so, so yeah, we have a choice in these situations. We can, we can choose to, to fight with the anxiety, you know, and make it worse. Or we can choose to do our very best to allow it to be there whilst choosing then to refocus our attention onto what we value. Because in any given moment, we can find something that we value. Um, there's a, you know, I don't know if you've read um, Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Oh, yes, absolutely. I, yeah, yeah. I, just wrote it, I just wrote it on my 18 top books to recommend for people yeah. who are struggling. Yeah. And so, yeah, and so it's, it's an amazing book. And um, in, in that book, he, uh, he says, you know, the last, of, the last of man's freedoms or something is, is I don't know, I'm not completely uh, saying it wrong. Um, <laughs> I'm going to paraphrase. He basically says, you know, the last, the last of our, our freedoms is to, to choose how we respond to, to our situation or to, to our... Yeah, in any given situation, our thoughts. And yeah, he's. There was a thing about you always have this moment, and that moment is yeah. the moment you decide how you're going to respond. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so, yeah, it's uh, it's an it's an amazing it's an amazing quote. I uh, if I had the book, I'd look it up right now and uh, tell you what it is because it's. Uh, we can put it in the we can put it in the little paragraph description. Yeah, because I've just completely destroyed it. Um, but. <laughs> no. uh, <laughs> I think you get my meaning. So yeah, we do have that choice. We really do have that choice. And it's, it's so important to remember that. So yeah, acceptance and choice, I think, are the two, the two big things for me. I think those are great ones. I'm just realizing it's one o'clock. It's one o'clock here in Barcelona. It's nighttime. Yeah. But I think I, I, think I have to go. But, I, but I've loved this conversation. Yeah, it's been fantastic. It's been really nice to talk to you and, and hear your story. And uh, yeah, I, I could carry on for longer, but um, I too have to disappear because my girlfriend is uh, making my dinner, which is very nice of her. And That's uh, a very nice. Yeah, she said it would be ready at 10 o'clock, so I've got two minutes. <laughs> oh my, that's so Barcelona. It's such a late dinner. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on. And, uh, you know, it was also lovely to come on to your podcast too. I know. It's been great to have you. And um, I'm excited about our experiment of doing a double podcast together. <laughs> it was great. Mm -hmm.